Good afternoon. My name is Gary Greenstein. I'm a partner at the law firm of Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, based out of the Washington, D.C. office. And for the purpose of this meeting, what's important is that for the first 10 years of my career, I represented copyright owners, record companies. One of my first clients was Mr. David Ring on the far end of the table. Uh, and then I switched sides and started representing technology companies. So I had the pleasure of being adverse to David. And now David has come over to my side uh, to some degree. I don't want to characterize him. Uh, but I've been on both sides of the issues for copyright law and technology and new media for approximately 20 years. Why don't I let yeah. Bill, why don't you briefly So we should yourself? probably reseat ourselves so I can be on that side and it'll be a two against one at this point. I, I uh, represent primarily the creative folks, uh, the, uh, the songwriters and uh, artists and legacy artists and estates of legacy artists and also the companies that they create, but uh, tend to be more on the creative side. David. Hi. Uh, nice to be back here. I'm, uh, I spent 19 years at Universal Music Group, almost entirely in digital, uh, seeing all the uh, ups and downs, mostly downs uh, while I was there, uh, but all the ins and outs of uh, various complex legal issues throughout my career. About three years ago, I started a consulting practice and a law practice, and I've been representing uh, technology companies um, and uh, startups and also uh, later stage small companies all in and around music uh, strategy and music licensing. So I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So let me first say, and I'll probably repeat this if more people come, nothing that any of us say can be attributed to our clients. We are speaking in our own individual capacity. Uh, you can tweet, you can post on social media, but you cannot say that so-and-so lawyer for blank says blank. Uh, we are here talking individually and we're imparting wisdom without it being attributed to anybody. May, may, I, may I just add to that, Gary? Yep. And some of the opinions may in fact be p opinions that we are deciding to take for educational purposes and may not in fact reflect our opinions. Right, so we only take the positions that we're paid to take. Uh, <laughs> we're great attorneys. And I did give them assignments, so uh, don't even try to read between the lines as to what they're doing. For the purposes of a dialectic here, I've asked them to take positions that will make the panel more educational. So survey, how many people here work for technology companies that use music? How many people represent copyright owners that license music? Andrew, raise your hand up high. Okay. Uh, how many represent labels primarily? What about music publishers? Any investors? Talent, how many artists are there in the room? Okay. Well, we have a, a good cross-section. What we're going to try to do is cover a number of hot topics that are percolating throughout the industry right now. We will also leave time for questions at the end. Uh, if you do have a burning question and feel the need to jump up and raise your hand, at my discretion I may uh, allow a question to be asked, but ideally we'll hold it to the end. So the first issue, consent decree modification. How many people know what the consent decrees are, if I use that terminology? So some people have not raised their hands. A consent decree is an agreement between, in this case, the United States Department of Justice and each of ASCAP and BMI. So there are two consent decrees. 
And basically, they require certain behavior limitations on behavior by ASCAP and BMI. And the unique issue with ASCAP and BMI is that they are joint selling entities. Uh, some people might call it a cartel, but in the words of antitrust law, you have competitors coming together. They are creating a new product. That's what the Supreme Court of the United States held. And they collectively set prices. Now, typically, competitors coming together to set prices would be a violation of the antitrust laws. But because there was deemed to be a pro-competitive benefit of a new product being offered by them, the collective works of all of the members or affiliates, depending upon if you're ASCAP or BMI, it was held to be permissible under the consent under US antitrust law. What happened within the last, I guess it's five years now, you had EMI Music Publishing was the first, wanted to withdraw certain rights from the PROs. And they wanted to license digital music services directly. So typically, if your works were in a PRO, the PRO would license public performances on your behalf. EMI threatened to withdraw. Each of ASCAP and BMI agreed to modify their rules to allow EMI to withdraw rights solely with respect to digital services. And I'm giving you a very abbreviated overview. There are lots of nuances here. Uh, they were in the middle, ASCAP and BMI were in the middle of a rate court proceeding with Pandora. Pandora challenged that determine or that decision by ASCAP and BMI to allow partial withdrawals of rights. There were determinations by the ASCAP rate court judge, so the judge that oversees the ASCAP consent decree, and by the BMI rate court judge overseeing the BMI decree that essentially held you could not be partially in the PRO and partially out. You were either all in or all out. And the rate court judges came to the same conclusion through different ways. In the case of ASCAP, they found partial withdrawals were illegitimate and all of the works were still in. The BMI rate court judge held that partial withdrawals effectively took you entirely out and that created a bit of chaos. The PROs after these rulings then went to the United States Department of Justice to see about modifying the consent decrees. And that started a two plus year process where the DOJ sought public comments had meetings with various stakeholders, established a set of principles that they thought they were going to adopt. And during the course of that process, there came up this issue of what's called fractional licensing. How many people know what fractional licensing is? Okay, so we have to do education on that. David, do you want to explain fractional licensing? Sure, uh, many songs are written by more than one uh, writer. And those writers often have a different uh, publisher and a different PRO that they're affiliated with. So that's what we call a split work. So when you have a split work, you can, David, the three of us can actually <coughs> write a work. And let's say I'm an ASCAP, Bill's in BMI, David is in CSAC. The question asked by DOJ was, if I, as a member of CSAC, am a co-writer with these two individuals who are not members of ASCAP, can a licensee of ASCAP use my work or our joint work without going to BMI and CSAC to get the remaining rights? So imagine we each have a third. I don't have 100% of the rights to the song. We're co-writers. And can ASCAP license that work in its entirety? When you license on an entirety, that's often called a full work or 100% licensing. 
if you had to go to BMI and CSAC to get the remaining 66%, if I had 33 through ASCAP, that would be called fractional licensing. So, Bill, do you want to yeah. comment well, on what DOJ sure. initially so, determined? Well, DO, DOJ, everyone thought was look, looking at the issue of partial withdrawal and not so much focusing on the other issue of partial ownership. See, two things are kind of smushed together here. One thing, one issue is partial withdrawal from the PROs. So here's where you have publishers that are saying, hey, you know, digital licensing is not really something that we need to have them handle that. Why don't we just let the PROs handle general licensing, like your bars and restaurants and broadcast and stuff like that. We'll handle the streaming platforms and the digital stuff. We can handle that ourselves. So we'll just withdraw partially from the PROs and let them handle all that other stuff. And the PROs were in favor of it. They were like, sure, okay, that's fine. But the DOJ and the, uh, the court said, no, you can't do that. It's all or nothing. So that's that issue, partial withdrawal. And the other issue is the um, fraction, the, the partial ownership. So you have uh, the DOJ coming back and shocking everyone by saying that we're saying now that it's, you can't, that any rights organization, ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, that is charged with issuing a non-exclusive license can issue, can do it for the whole song, even if they only represent one of the writers, and that's created this big storm um, in the industry. So DOJ undertook this process, and originally, and I, for purposes of full disclosure, I represented both Pandora and Spotify uh, before the Department of Justice. And initially it looked as though DOJ was going to modify the decrees, and there were going to be a series of conditions that they were going to impose on ASCAP and BMI. And during the course of that, there came up this question of whether or not when you got a license from ASCAP and BMI, even if they allowed partial withdrawals. So the partial withdrawal, remember, a music publisher, Warner Chapel Music Publishing, withdraws its digital rights. So the right to publicly perform Warner Chapel works from ASCAP and BMI, and therefore Pandora or Spotify or Apple or anybody else would have to negotiate directly with Warner Chapel. The DOJ was wrestling with this, they asked for comment, and then the DOJ shut down the investigation, did not do what they had indicated to do, and they basically denied the right of partial withdrawal, and they declared that there was full work licensing. So David, can you give the uh, explanation that DOJ set forth? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the brief is actually incredibly interesting to read. I won't have uh, all of that in my head, but it relies on a couple of different things. First of all, um, the nature of the work, this isn't in, in any order, but the nature of the work is a, it's a joint work, but it's joint as part of a whole. The nature of a, a composition uh, and the ability to perform that composition, since we're talking about the performance right, is illusory actually, um, according to the DOJ's brief, and I, uh, part of me tends to agree, although, like I said, I haven't necessarily got a, a point of view on either side of it. But the DOJ, I think, persuasively argued, what is the rationale for the essential, essentially a settlement between what was prohibited antitrust behavior, collective licensing, um, 
and uh, the, the, the public interest in making sure that all the works are available to license in a, in a manner that's um, actually viable for customers who actually want to perform music. Think bars, restaurants, anywhere you, you, you can think of radio, things that where you know, some of the um, ability to license, even if you're a big company, it's very hard to get direct licenses. So the rationale for actually allowing the ASCAP and BMI to continue to operate, but only under these consent decrees, was to facilitate the ability for somebody to go to a, a performing rights society, request a license, negotiate a rate, but immediately after requesting the license, be able to play music in their restaurant, for example. So one of the, um, one of the things that's at issue here is if it is only fractional interests or if a large part of the catalog that ASCAP or BMI would be licensing were only fractional interests, then, and, and it, evidence indicates it would be a significant part of the catalog that are shared or what are split works with different performing rights organizations, that there really isn't enough public benefit and a bunch of uh, holdups can happen, small uh, writer percentages, that haven't granted a PRO uh, license to ASCAP or BMI could simply hold out and, you know, collect more money than either any party might feel is reasonable or just refuse to license at all, thereby kind of undermining the entire reason for the consent decrees, which was a careful balancing of interests on the antitrust laws versus the interest of public and actually being able to license a large swath of, of content and be able to perform that music without going to, uh, what, there's 10 million and 13 million uh, pieces of uh, catalog in the repertories of just ASCAP and BMI alone, very, very sensible kind of striking of a balance. So, I mean, that's part of sort of where we, where we ended yeah, up. Yeah, I, th I think one of the things, there's a, a short phrase that's worth keeping in mind, that the consent decrees were designed for rapid, unplanned, and indemnified access to the use of musical works that the consent decree question is one of antitrust law and not so much one of copyright law. And the problem is you have the intersection of the two and there are pretty divergent views. If you are a copyright geek, one of the things you should do is read the briefs by the US government and the industry participants on the one hand that are in support of 100% licensing as the obligation under ASCAP and BMI uh, consent decrees. And then you read the briefs on the other side by BMI, and then the amici, which include ASCAP, the International Confederation of Societies of Authors and Composers. So that's CISAC, not CSAC in Nashville, but CISAC, C-I-S-A-C. -S and then also Sissy SpaceX also yeah. submitted an amici uh, brief. You've got the Nashville Songwriters Association, the NMPA, and CSAC, and Global Music Rights. So Bill, can yeah, you quickly yeah. give the views sure. of the amici? Um, and br yeah, and briefly also, what we're talking about, may many of you may know this, that if you're a joint owner, you have a right in the United States, you have the right to um, grant a license, to, an, a non-exclusive license to whoever you want, whether you have your co-joint copyright owner's approval or not. And that's not in the Copyright Act, but it's in the cases. And that's what, we're, what I think the DOJ did was to look at that tenancy in common rule and to say that that should be the case with ASCAP and BMI, that you just have the, that a single copyright owner has this right 
So that's it. Problem, the big, so you asked me about the amici briefs, and the one that sticks out to me the, the most compellingly from their arguments against going to 100% licensing is that the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world doesn't have that rule, okay? In Great Britain, France, and Germany, they don't have this rule that, that you have to, if, even if you want a non-exclusive license, you have to get the, the, all of the owners, all of the writers, all their publishers to agree. So that we have a disagreement here as to whether under international law, whether that makes a difference or not, but I think there's enough of a, it's a cold, cold world out there in the copyright, in terms of copyright uh, infringement lawsuits, and you want to cover yourself in warm blankets and get the blanket license from ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC so that you can feel like you have insurance against a copyright infringement. And that's and one of the, that's what's in these amici briefs. They talk about various reasons why, and the one that struck out to me most compellingly was the rest of the world. In, in other countries, they, are not, they might not recognize this, and you may have a writer uh, in England who has aligned himself with ASCAP, and if you just go to BMI and get that license, it may not cover you. Other people, you, you may disagree with me on that, but I think so, many people um, have looked at it and said that's too much of a risk, so even if, it became the law of the land that it was 100% licensing. I think people would still want to get all of the blanket licenses. David, so part of the issue with the consent decrees is that you have two regulated PROs, ASCAP and BMI, and by regulated I mean they're subject to these consent decrees. You have two unregulated PROs, CSAC and currently Global Music Rights, or GMR. CSAC entered into essentially a 20-year private decree when they were litigating against the radio and television music licensing committees. But you have GMR out there, which has about 80 writers, including Eddie Vedder, Bruce Springsteen, some very, uh, Pharrell, Bruno Mars. I did Mars. Ziggy, Ziggy Marley's deal with them too, so don't okay. leave him up. Um, but so GMR obviously does not want someone to be able to use a Bruno Mars work where Bruno Mars co-wrote with someone else and let's say that co-writer is an ASCAP, but a licensee can go to ASCAP, get the rights, and not have to deal with GMR. Is that the right approach? If you're having a collective licensing entity, should there be a 100% license here? Should someone be able to go to get the rights to Bruno Mars if he co-wrote with an ASCAP writer without having to go to GMR? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. Honestly, I, I think I have to step back to, to rely on um, a couple of things. One is that without the ability to actually perform the music once you've gotten a license from ASCAP, um, once you've requested the license in your negotiations, uh, to, be, to not be able to have the, what you, you had a quote, I think, from the consent degree, immediate, indemnifiable. Rapid, rapid unplanned, and indemnified. Un, so a rapid, unplanned, and indemnified access to perform the music. You can't get that in a world where uh, there are some fractions. And now, you know, if this actually is the law, um, if it's determined that fractional licensing is possible and the ASCAP and BMI only license fractional interests, then... Um, the entire consent decree balance is upset. So you have now a collective group licensing on behalf of all the copyright owners for the performance rights without any uh, constraints around how they do so. 
uh, because a small rider with a small percent can just take his stuff out of, say, uh, BMI, put it in GMR, uh, put it in a brand new PRO upstart, which I would expect if there's fractional licensing, you'll have a number of those. Anybody with a hit song would say, well, I'm just going to go to a different PRO. I'll start my own GMR-like PRO. And I think what we see is that the public interest is not only not served by that, but harmed. Uh, because less music is going to be available for legitimate licensing, less music is going to be available for actual performing and enjoyment. So, to but my I, mind, I think that's I think that's the um, that that's what happens if you end up with a uh, fractional license capabilities. I think it, it it greatly upsets what still might not be a perfect balance today, but it greatly upsets a lot of music usage, and I think that's going to be very harmful. But I mean, the balance today is fraction. The status quo is fractional licenses. That's what's going on now. What we're talking about is transfer, trans, trans, is switching over to 100% licensing. I mean, right now it seems to have worked pretty well. I think you raise a good point that there's a, the risk that people start thinking, gee, why don't I start up? Right now we have Pepsi, Coke, RC Cola, we have, you know, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and Irving's uh, custom craft uh, soda, okay, the, with GMR. Maybe there'll be 10 others. Maybe you're right. That could be a risk. But it's worked pretty well. It hasn't happened like that. There's been a little yeah, bit there, of that. There's it's a dispute as well. to whether or not the current marketplace is fractional or 100%. There was a ruling in the Buffalo Broadcasting case that if a broadcaster obtained a right from BMI for a work embodied in a television program or an, a radio, a song on radio, they did not then need to go to ASCAP. So that's the one direct holding that talks about fractional or 100% licensing. And then there's a lot of other noise that's going on. Again, if you are a copyright geek, the amicus, brief, the amicus briefs put in arguments that are not in the record. So they're not pointing to record evidence, they're making policy arguments. And again, this is an antitrust issue, not necessarily a copyright issue. We're going to move on. There is an oral argument on December 1st before the Second Circuit in New York City. And for such a complicated issue, each side has only get, got uh, 10 minutes to argue their case. So uh, we'll see if they actually go only 10 minutes. I think it's the third argument in the morning, so very likely that that may run over. But it's a very tough issue. Uh, let's briefly talk about an issue of a piece of legislation called the Transparency in Music Licensing Act. And that has been something that uh, has caused a stir among copyright owners because it would limit what? David, do you, what, what upsets people? This is like Jeopardy. This is, this is the, the biggest hammer, and it's a massive one, and it's one that's, I think, destructive um, destructively used um, on occasion is the statutory damages for copyright infringement. They can be extraordinarily painful even if a party, which since there's no intent required to prove for copyright infringement, it can be very damaging even to a company that it's done everything they could possibly do to get all the licenses in place. There, uh, which I would contend most of the services do. Uh, maybe it wasn't that way 15 years ago, um, but it is, I think, uh, safe to say that most of the services and the ones that you've all heard of and they're doing well have spent uh, countless hours and seriously 
tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars paying rights owners on, on all aspects and doing their very best. Spotify, for example, is the subject of this litigation, hired Harry Fox, which was then owned by the National Music Publishers Association, to help them properly license and pay publishers and writers. It, it is not always possible because the databases are a little bit uh, funky. Sometimes people you know, are not with some of these organizations. So despite anybody's best efforts, any service's best efforts, there's gonna be stuff that falls through the cracks. So this is intended to say, you know, if you do X, and that is make sure have all of your uh, metadata and data about your compositions and recordings are all in this database, so any user can go and see who owns it and who to go to get a license, then statutory damages, and if you've done that, statutory damages for copyright infringement, $150,000 per occurrence currently today, will not apply. So you'd have to be getting actual damages, which tough to prove, and probably very small. Actually, to, if the copyright owner does provide that information, then they are eligible for stat, they can seek if they don't, statutory sorry, I, damages. Not, I, that's not, what I meant yeah, to say, sorry. Not only statutory damages, but also attorney fees, which is scarier to many than statutory because yeah. attorney's fees if, and that's under the current system for a copyright infringement if you've registered your copyright before the infringement you are not only entitled to statutory damages but you're also entitled to attorney's fees if you don't have that good luck settling the case it's almost like you, you know you can't get punitive damages um, you can't you can only get actual damages and it's almost like imagine somebody goes into a grocery store, takes whatever the hell they want and just walks out. A policeman comes and grabs them. What are they gonna, what's the penalty gonna be? They're gonna have to pay for their groceries. It's the, that's what it is. We're talking about the, the penalty is the actual license fee. In many cases, not all cases, but without that hammer of the statutory damages and even more bigger hammer of attorney's fees, very hard to sue somebody for copyright infringement. So copyright owners do not like this, this legislation uh, the companies that I presently represent are big fans of it. Uh, let's move on. There's something called a, the one, Section 115 Mechanical Compulsory License, uh, which is a statutory license. A statutory license is granted by Congress, which basically says you can use a copyrighted work owned by a third party without having to negotiate with that party so long as you comply with the statute. And there are usually conditions set forth in the statute rates that will be adopted pursuant to the statute and then there are implementing regulations. There was a proceeding that took place, we're coming towards the end of it. Uh, it started January of 2016 and by statute it has to be completed by December 17th of 2017. So it runs for two years and the tribunal in Washington DC is called the Copyright Royalty Board comprised of three copyright royalty judges. We are awaiting their decision. This is for the right to engage in interactive streaming or digital downloads. So on the one hand, you have the copyright owners, which are the music publishers. So you've got the NMPA involved, you've got Nashville Songwriters, Sony ATV Music Publishing, Warner Chapel, Universal Music Publishing on the one hand. On the other hand, you have people like Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, and Google. Uh, so you have some pretty large parties that have been litigating. This is the first time the proceeding has been fully litigated because in the past it has resulted in negotiated settlements. And so the parties came together and negotiated the rates. 
Uh, it has now been litigated. All of the evidence is in. We're waiting, awaiting the outcome. David, do you want to give a high-level view of sort of what the rate proposals are or some of the rate proposals on both sides? Yeah, it's pretty complex. So 10.5%, uh, one of the proposals, 10.5% of, of revenues um, and uh, um, there's some uh, deductions which um, I think are reasonable um, in, in my view, but for things like app store fees or- Actually, other. that's not currently deducted. Oh, oh, you mean- so in the new in yeah so currently services there are, there are lots of different rates for different categories but a good rule of thumb is that you pay 10.5% of revenue if you're a service and you subtract out the performance royalties so if you're paying 10.5% and you're paying 5% to ASCAP BMI CSAC and GMR you would create a pool of 5.5% of revenue to be split among all of the music publishers for the PRO fees Right. And then what you're talking about is what the services are proposing to do for a going forward five-year basis. Right. In addition to to um, in addition to that, the all-in, uh, they also want to have be able to deduct like an Apple tax or right. whatever the you know App Store or might charge, and some other deductions, um, so that the revenue that they're sharing is actually the revenue they're receiving, right? Which kind of uh, makes sense in a lot of ways. Um, so, uh, I can talk about the other side. Yeah. Sure, 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 go ahead. Yeah, on the copyright owner's side of it, the proposal uh, that I read was um, uh, the greater of one-fifteenth of a cent, that's point zero zero one five per play for licensed activity for mechanical rights only during an, the accounting period, the greater of that, and I'll break this down for you, or a dollar six per end user per month. Uh, I think it's very aggressive, very, very aggressive. Just think about the dollar. Let's. What are we talking about? Well, here, wait. Before you go into that, what about performance royalties? So under okay, and that's only regime, mechanicals. That's correct. only on the mechanicals. Generally, uh, what we're talking about here is a bundle. Uh, for you people who are on the tech side, you're looking to license a bundle um, of, on the publishing side forgetting for the moment about the dealing with the label on the record side, but you need, the, you need a mechanical and you need a performance. And we can get into a long discussion, which we don't have time for, why do you need a mechanical anyway? Uh, but it's worked out that way. The publishers are at, were at risk of losing out on this thing called a mechanical royalty in the streaming age because there's, no more, there's not gonna be any more sales. So they managed to work it out where by convention, not by law, um, Apple or Spotify will split up the the, the uh, publishing royalty in half. So half of it is called a mechanical and half of it is called a performance uh, royalty. So all we're talking about right here is the mechanical part of it. And the, this is quite a hefty, I mean, I'm on the, all for the creatives and the songwriters, but I think it's just, you're talking about a dollar six just for the mechanical part of it, so for both mechanical and performance, it would be $2.12 a month. So if you're paying $9.99 a month for Spotify, two oh six of that is gonna be- well, actually, that, it's not it's not exactly 50-50. The, the thought is that the, at least currently, the PRO close. fees are about 5% of revenue. The $1.06 works out to just over 15% of revenue on a $9.99 subscription. Um, 
if the service only receives $7 out of the $9.99, it's actually a higher percentage. But then what you're doing is you're adding those costs. So let's say you're paying 20% for the mechanical and the publishing, roughly double the current 10.5%. And the record companies are receiving, David, do you, are you at some, liberty to discuss? Yeah, somewhere, it's somewhere between, uh, somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of revenue gross no deductions labels only yeah yeah so if if you are paying the labels let's say 57% and then all of a sudden you're now going to pay 20% on publishing you're now talking about 70% 77% of revenue to operate one of these interactive streaming services so you can imagine why the services complain, but to be fair, because there, there are publisher representatives here, uh, there's a view that the amount of money is just too low. And what Bill was talking about, one of the big issues here is mechanical royalty income has gone down. So when we talk about that, mechanical royalties are always paid when people were selling CDs. So David, do you wanna just explain, or Bill, why don't you explain just, on a sale of a CD, how did it work? What was the mechanical royalty? Well, I mean, on the the it was great Without in the old days. Compositions, just um, straight. You no know, nine uh, you know, on a, nine cents. Nine point one. Nine point one cents. Um, if it was a you know full rate, and that was great in the old days. And you sold an album that had one hit song on it, and you you'd be getting a mechanical on twelve songs. And and it was a, it's a threat to to the publishing industry to sort of see the end of all that and the decline of all that. And with streaming coming in, it was like, wait a minute, we don't even need mechanicals anymore because they don't, it's not really a, a reproduction of uh, something. It's actually more like a broadcast. And so they didn't have, they didn't let the courts decide that or let the legislators decide that. They just decided amongst themselves. And I think that it's the case that Apple will pretty much divide in half that royalty and call half of it, maybe not exactly well, half they of don't, it. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's as an a, issue. It's, and it's a fiction in a sense, I think, although maybe it'll get litigated and we'll just, someone will decide that there is actually a reproduction. But for a streaming, uh, in any event, you've got, well, the point is that it's, I'm all for raising the rates and I think the creative people need to get more money. But if you raise it too high, what we really need to do is have a volume business. We have, what, 50 million Spotify subscribers we need hundreds of millions of sus subscribers all over the world, and you're not going to get 9.99 in West Africa or something, or in uh, El Salvador or in Mongolia or wherever. You got to get the whole world. There's maybe going to be six billion smartphones by 2022. I don't want to digress too far here, but yeah, you know, why, why don't we get back online? But the point yeah. is that the if you have too aggressive a proposal here and it raises that bundle and the publishers get a much bigger chunk because they're up, they're getting five, they're getting one fifth of what the labels are getting at the, under the current. They're not too happy with that. They're getting under streaming, uh, they're getting one fifth of what the labels are getting. So, if, but if they, in, if you increase that too far, it's gonna just raise the, the cap and it's just gonna, you're gonna be paying $30 a month instead of 9.99 a yeah, month. And or, frankly, the consumer's probably not going to pay that. The question is, what is the consumer willing to pay? This five to one ratio between the sound recording and the musical work though, uh, when David and I worked together before we were adverse and now we're kind of together again, um, the argument was that 
the record company should get paid more than the, mu than the music publishers because the record companies invest more money, they take greater risk, they have fewer income streams, and so they have to recoup from fewer streams of revenue. So that's part of the reason. But mid-December is the date that you want to mark in your calendar because it could either be highly disruptive. Uh, if the rate is too low, the publishers may go to Capitol Hill. If the rate is too high, the services may go to Capitol Hill. If the judges kind of punt and keep it status quo, status quo is often easy for people because they've learned to live with it. But that, that is a big issue uh, coming down the pike. Let's talk about uh, Section 115 litigation. So how many people are aware of lawsuits that were filed against Spotify recently and then David Israelite and other music publishers talking about how Spotify has declared war on the music publishing industry. Okay, so a well-informed audience. Uh, David, do you want to explain what, what that yeah, is about? Yes. Um, first, I, I think I do want to say that, um, I mean, I spent my entire life as a musician and then copyright representative um, almost my entire adult life. Uh, but I have had the benefit of, for the last three years and even during my time at Universal, to see that the copyright monopoly um, doesn't always work even in the copyright owner's own self-interest. Uh, that is to say, sometimes the desire to get more and more and more, go, we used to be at 50%, then it's 52 and 55 and 57, 57.5. You know, there were some record companies asking for 60 or even 62. Um, it, it, it's not that you were ever that unreasonable. I, I was never that unreasonable. I actually felt, to, to be honest with you, I actually felt all along that the customer focus has to be, um, you know, front and center in determining what all these rates are because the, the copyright owners have massive amounts of leverage. But the question is, should they really use all that leverage um, to their maximum extent if, in fact, that means you have unhealthy customers or the only customers that can actually afford to lose money and run a music business are the highest market capitalized companies in the world, like Apple uh, and Amazon and Google slash YouTube slash next step Facebook. You know, Spotify, fantastic company. I, I've loved them. Uh, disclosure, I, you know, I have represented them. Uh, I've known Daniel and Martin for a long time, and, and I can tell you they're not in it to build a money-losing business. But no matter how hard they try, um, they're not making money, and they're getting hit with all these lawsuits with their, when they have tried, absolutely tried in earnest and in good faith to get licenses. The fact is, is, if you can't get all the licenses um, and no one can do it perfectly, I don't think there's anybody that probably doesn't have a bunch of gaping holes, but when you get as big as a company like Spotify, um, you're going to have problems. Query whether anybody's going to sue Apple or Amazon, uh, which may have you know, the kinds of resources to um, really do battle both legislatively and uh, in the courts. Uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, so Spotify gets hit with all these class actions. They do their best to settle. They hired HFA, which, as I said before, was owned by the music publishers previously. HFA didn't do a perfect job. Uh, no one probably can do a perfect job with the Anyone from license. HFA here? I don't see Lauren or Rachel. Well, I'll say okay. this. Statutory licensing is a near impossibility. If you read the statute, you have to do monthly accountings, annual, uh, um, uh, annual financial 
reports that are like certified annual financial reports for every copyright owner. So you're know, talking millions of annual certified reports. It's, it's not possible to really comply with the statute. In fact, even in the CD area, you couldn't do that either because you'd have to comply by doing it 30 days after the reproduction or after the manufacture of the CD. And I can tell you right now, most of the records that were hits, you don't even know who the writers are. You certainly don't know the splits until it's months after the CD's been released. So the statute's completely and utterly broken. So, you know, for Spotify to get hit with all of this litigation and, and any of the other companies that have been hit, by the way, Napster, others, lots of companies have been hit with this. It, it's a little bit uh, un, it's, it, it's sort of a, it may be, it may be legally they may be um, caught, but I don't think that makes it morally correct. So in Spotify's case, uh, there was a, a, an action against them, and I'm forgetting the plaintiff, um, but uh, the, uh, the, the complaint just basically said, Spotify is streaming, it's the new Napster, uh, so there are massive infringers, give us you know, tons of money. So it didn't, it didn't say anything with any specificity about what reproductions were made, what, was the, what were the infringing activities? There was nothing in there, it was a really weak, weak complaint. So all Spotify did really is say, hey, uh, your complaint stinks. We don't even know how to respond to it because there's not enough details in there about what you're alleging we did to infringe for us to complain, uh, for us to respond to that complaint. We might have defenses. We might have all, there might be all kinds of things. You got to say it again. You got to do it better. And uh, frankly, after reading the complaint, I couldn't agree more. It was a weak complaint. So that's it. They, they just basically say, hey, your complaint's not good enough. So they'll file a new complaint with new allegations, and then there'll be a legitimate Right, so the, what Spotify's lawyers titled the brief as was motion for a more definitive statement. Mm -hmm. And the music publishing community thought that Spotify was taking the position that uh, Spotify was alleging that a mechanical license was not required for an interactive stream. That, that is an interesting issue as to whether or not there is a difference between a non-interactive stream and an interactive stream. And the reason why interactive streams by industry acceptance, for the most part, gets paid a mechanical royalty is that interactive streams are viewed as substitutional for people having bought CDs. So as we talked about earlier, if people bought CDs, there was the 9.1 cents per song, the composition, that was paid to the copyright owner. And if people are not buying CDs because they can go and subscribe to Spotify and they can hear the entire album Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, well, then the publishers are losing out on that money. So you can understand why publishers want mechanical royalty income for interactive streaming. There are technical issues about whether or not server copies result in a reproduction that should become uh, compensable at a full rate of, you know, whether it's 9.1 cents or 0.0015 cents or, you know, essentially uh, $1.6 per subscriber per month. So that, I think there was a lot of noise about that issue, but maybe not so meaningful in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the noise was reading in uh, stuff that wasn't in the actual uh, paperwork itself before the court and reading intent and, and, and direction. And I think that's, I think it was unfair that that press against Spotify was unfair in my view. Right. So pre-72 sound recordings, Bill, what is yeah. a pre-72 sound recording? And why has it been in the news? And since we were here, how many people were at this panel last year? I know Debbie was. You weren't here last year? I always count on you being here. So around this time okay. last year, um, 
there were well there had been seven different lawsuits brought by four these are class action lawsuits four different uh, plaintiffs um, five in five jurisdictions New York California Florida um, what are the other two okay no they were they were Georgia Florida and so what are we what are we talking about here really what we're talking about is hey maybe we've is uh, the attorney and their these uh, nom nominal uh, class action plaintiffs saying maybe we can find a way to make a lot of money here because um, before 1972, by the way, February 15, 1972, um, it's a weird date. The reason is because the law was passed on October 15th of 71 and there was four months later it became effective. Anyway, that date um, is when we federalized, uh, we had federal copyright protection for sound recordings. A little weird um, that it wasn't, it wasn't included in the 1909 Act, uh, Copyright Act. In England, they've had it since 1911. The Imperial Copyright Act of 1911 had- 1909. No, 1911, the, 1909, oh, which, 1911, the, the Copyright Act 1911 in the UK. Oh. Um, and all of the British, uh, uh, what they call the British Reversionary Territories, which are the colonies from Canada to Australia to Singapore to Jamaica, have had copyright protection for sound recordings since 1911, most of them. The U.S., for some reason, and we could get into a long discussion about why, which hasn't we had won't. it, which we we're, won't. We're going straight to uh, it's all big bad, it's sound recordings. Big radio, big radio. But anyway, from the time of the talk, the competition between the talking machine and the radio as home entertainment back in the early 1900s till now, it's been a fight between big radio and record business, and big radio has been winning most of the time. Anyway, we won't talk about it though. And it's. Um, what we're talking about here, though, is 1972. Uh, what they, these uh, clever attorneys, mostly it was uh, Richard Bush, uh, figured that you know this, there's these state laws that you know may apply, um, and so uh, they brought these actions and said that the state unfair competition laws might actually give us a right to uh, a kind of a copyright um, to these sound recordings. That hey, maybe we'll even give us. Um, a right to broadcast uh, royalties, um, and so that's what's been going on. And those those cases are still um, some of them are in a hibernative state. Others uh, we've had some rulings actually in New York. The key ones are New York and California. So in New York, you had uh, the the federal the Second Circuit calling on the in both New York and California the federal appeals courts have called on the state supreme courts to interpret those laws those unfair competition laws those kind of quasi copyright laws in those states to say hey do these laws really give these people the right to get um, sort of a copyright income from these from these songs uh, that were pre 1972 or don't they um, and, in and in New York, they said no, the, the court said no, and we're waiting in California for a result. Yeah, David? Um, just want to give a little bit of sort of a high-level high kind of background that covers a few things that are, of, I think, of interest generally that set the stage for all the stuff that, that Bill's just talking about. So um, first of all, um, if it's pre-72 and it's not covered by the federal copyright uh, law, then do you have to pay a pre-72 copyright holder. Uh, Sirius XM went through a period, um, and I can't remember if it was before the merger and therefore it was Sirius, and not, but they went through a period where they said they didn't have to pay. 
so then there was, uh, that was sort of a big deal. Like, gee, that's, that doesn't make any sense, right? Just because it was pre-72, um, I think they should have to pay. Well, if they're not paying um, and they're using, well, aren't they copyright infringers? So that gives us another action of if you're, when I was back at the label. Well, if they're not paying, maybe we can sue them. And then the other thing is the big problem in the industry that really hurt all of us in the room and everybody else, uh, except for potentially you know, Google uh, and others like Google, was the, the way the DMCA has been interpreted and the safe harbor provisions. So then the question is if it's, if it's DMCA approval and safe harbor provisions as, as set forth in Viacom, basically give a massive, massive disability to the music business, maybe you go ahead and find uh, the infringement at the state level where there is no DMCA safe harbor because it's not under federal protection. So a lot of this was ways in which each and every way, which how could the copyright industries turn around and figure out how to combat some of this piracy, combat the YouTube uh, um, results of the YouTube Viacom litigation and the years before that where there was all back and forth. And this was a kind of a power play, a strategic power play. Of course, and I'll tell you this just because it was, seemed so obvious to me at the time, I was around the table when we were all talking about this, and I raised my hand and I said, well, okay, let's say all your dreams come true and we, you know, we, we, we win the copyright infringement case and uh, there's no safe harbor. And, isn't this just going to end up uh, federalized at some point? Isn't somebody just going to say, well, that's ridiculous. These people should be paid. It should be under federal protection. And, of course, that is what is at least currently being proposed as the Classics Act from uh, Congressman Nagel. Nagler, Na Nadler, Jerry Nadler, Nadler. I yeah. said Nagel, Nadler. Um, sorry, Jerry Nadler. So Jerry Nadler has this piece of legislation called the, Sl the Classics Act, which essentially seeks to federalize. But it's actually interesting. It's not federalization of the copyright. It's federalization of the obligation to pay royalties in order to avoid a suit for damages. That's interesting. So, okay, so a yeah. very important distinction. Yeah. So, you know, you go to a high level, you miss the real, the, the real legal issue there, but... The, the overarching point is that inevitably, every time uh, you find a way to get, do a shortcut or, you know, there's, there's always some push uh, or pull from the other stakeholders. And so I, I expect, I, I would but think one, this is going to work. One, reason, that, why, that why, one work. reason why the labels might be opposed to it is that if you federalize these earlier 1960s uh, sound recordings, you're going to have a lot of termination notices that yeah. they don't won't get right now because they don't have termination notices under state law. So that's a reason why they're not going to want to have that. Uh, but it's an interesting case, and there's one case in that group that's the most interesting called ABS versus CBS. Yeah, we're not we're not going to because we're down to a few minutes left. So I want to go for questions. One case that I do want to put on people's radar, which is an interesting one. Again, if if you're operating internationally. Uh, if you're a foreign entity and you're making content available in the U.S. or you operate in the U.S. Uh, and you make uh, content available outside the U.S. called Spansky, S-P-A-N-S-K-I. So that is a case where you've got a Polish entity making transmissions into the United States sued by an entity in the United States that has the rights to the content from Poland for the U.S. market. And the question is whether or not there's a violation of U.S. law. And actually, it doesn't sound interesting, but if you start thinking about representing a U.S. company and they're not geo-filtering and their content is available all over the globe, 
should you have to go to every single territory where 10 people might come to your website? Um, why don't we go to questions? Is there a microphone? Debbie is always my friend. You spoke about Jerry Nadler, whom I saw speak last week, and I've seen him so many times he now knows me because I always go up to him. Um, you didn't mention the Fair, pay, fair Play, Fair Pay Act? Nope. Because the Classics Act is kind of a yep. connected to it. Correct. So the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act, which if it passed, would finally have terrestrial AM, FM radio paying right. some kind of royalty for the public performance of sound recordings. My understanding from him and also from Richard Burgess, the head of A2IM, who mentioned last week at an A2IM party that they are making great progress in their discussions um, in Congress. Nadler and our lovely Marsha Blackburn are the co-sponsors of the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. I understand it's moving along, and I'm wonder, and it's a good possibility that it might actually happen. So that I'm would be amazing. I mean, where what you might know about where that stands, because the Classics Act then would actually get the pre-'72 sound recordings also p paid the public performance royalties for radio and the neighboring rights money that's sitting in black boxes around the rest of the world for U.S. artists who can't get paid for their play on radio outside the U.S. Some of those U.S. artists can get paid, though, if they... they have to if live they, in the... Not necessarily, not at all. No, I mean, if they... Yeah. It depends on the countries. It's all different, but in many lucrative countries like uh, France, Germany, Sweden, uh, even the UK, it's if the recording was commissioned by a uh, label that's outside of the U.S. in one of those countries, um, then it, then that artist, even if they live in the U.S., they're in Switzerland, you'd have to have a, uh, a passport outside of the U.S., but in many territories, yeah, there are U.S. writers, and that's a huge source of income, neighboring rights income, and none of them get it here in the U.S. because of big radio. Yeah, the, so the qu I I think if this Congress will pass any legislation, it might be a miracle. Um, I, I'm not sure I would hold my breath, but even Frank you know. Sinatra used to go up to the hill every year trying to pass yeah. this. And progressive Democrat, that it actually crosses those political lines, and that the Judiciary Committee isn't quite so that they're more. Uh, it depends on the power of the broadcasters and whether or not the broadcasters will accede to a new right. Other questions here, and then Kurt. Thank you. Um, I am a Recording Academy member, and tomorrow is our advocacy day in the districts, and we're all going throughout the country to our representatives. Mine is Jackie Spear, and many of you may know who she is, but she's on our side, and if we get all of these um, Congress people to say, yes, we will, I mean, we're hoping in all 50 states, then is there a chance? Is there a question, Linda? Then? Yeah, is, is there a chance it will pass if they all sign on and say, oh, yes, sure, we're all for the fair play, fair pay? I, it goes back to whether or not the broadcasters, remember in the Senate, all you need is one senator to prevent unanimous consent, and then you've got to get a vote, and it's very hard to get things through the U.S. Senate, generally, not to mention a dysfunctional Congress. Uh, Kurt? Hi, you, Gary, you raised a question going into the questions. Um, whether you, if you have listeners in every region of the world in a country with 10 listeners, have you got to go to every one of those countries? You raised the question, but can you discuss the topic for a minute? You mean give an answer to that question? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, can tell you what Spanksy, answer. I can yeah. tell you what Spanksy said. Well, Span that's the district court, and now it's up on appeal. Uh, you know, I think in general, most people will say that you need to get a license in the territory of reception. So that concept, so there's the territory of transmission where the 
broadcast or a webcast originates. And then there's the territory of reception, which are where your listeners are based. Most people will advise that you need to get a license in the territory of reception. Uh, when you're a small entity, you probably don't get on the radar of the foreign collecting societies or the rights owners in those jurisdictions. But I have many clients that have gotten letters from foreign PROs. And then the, the issue is, do you stop transmitting into that territory or do you try to negotiate? Um, so it's a, you need to talk with your attorney and understand your risk profile about what's the best strategy, I think, for your individual company. And I'm not giving anyone legal advice, so um, don't rely on that generally. Okay, one more, I know, but you, you asked a question. Uh, gentleman right back there. So I'll, I'll just try and sort of spell out the scenario. Uh, aging composer does an album, goes out on a major 52 years ago uh, in some, let's call it a third world country. Uh, that album now gets put up uh, through an aggregator as a new release. It's retitled etc etc uh, it interferes with current you know album releases and and marketing around the artist there are no contracts to be found office universal's office burnt down uh, artist doesn't have the contract what would the artist's next step be it, does he have any recourse <laughs> to hire a lawyer in, in, yeah i was going to say hire a lawyer okay. it's not it's not the kind of thing they can you know this is this is a very specific uh, yeah. question based on extraordinarily specific facts, and I bet it would take an hour to get all the facts straight. Yeah, I mean, it obviously has to do with copy lifetime of, of uh, you know, sound recording copyright, but yeah. So, well, thank you all for coming again. For those of you who came in late, do not attribute anything any of us said to any of our clients. We're just here talking amongst friends and not in an internet connected world. This, I'd like to thank my two... This panel never happened. Yeah, I'd like to thank my two panelists and Brian and Shoshana. Thank you.